Let's pray. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, ever three and ever one. Lord, may your word through the prophet Isaiah pierce our hearts and renew our minds. And let our hearts burn as we see Christ and the prophet. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. It's Christmas morning. The parents have quietly placed some surprise presents underneath the tree while we're listening softly to some Christmas music before they go off to bed. And a few hours later, the kids are up and at them at 5.30 in the morning. Parents slowly drag out of bed and get the coffee ready while Dad puts the Christmas music back on. Joy is in the air. Why? Well, the kids are about to open their presents that they've been anticipating for over a month now. The parents are excited to see the happiness on their children's faces. And the kids tear into the wrapping paper and their jaws drop with excitement and thankfulness. You see, the parents know their children. They know what they like and what they need. And they've been planning these gifts for some time now. Now, the parents didn't look at their kids and say, you know, he's been a good boy this year. And because of that, I will love him. Therefore, because I will love him, I will give him a great gift. No, the gifts parents give their children are not based on earnings from their children. Presents are not wages. Parents, presents are not the due parents give to their, owe to their children. Christmas presents represent grace. Grace given to undeserving. Gifts based on relationship, not merit. We as parents do not give presents like Santa Claus, giving gifts for the nice and switches and coal for the naughty. Because in all, all reality is, all of us deserve the switches and coal. No parents give to their children out of love for them. They plan these gifts for them just because they love them, because they are their children. And on the flip side, children don't say, hey, mom and dad, these wages, I mean, excuse me, presents aren't enough. I deserve more. No, when they open their presents, they run to their parents with thanksgiving and, and joyful hugs and kisses. God loves his people. His people are sinners that do not deserve anything good from him, but amazingly, this God, the one and only God, loves his people so much that he gives them a gift, an eternal gift. And what is this gift? More accurately, who is this gift? And how does this gift of God cause our rejoicing and thanksgiving? Why do we need this gift? And if this is a needed gift, why are we so often apathetic to this gift and this historical fact? You know, familiarity doesn't just bring contempt. It often brings apathy. But the realization of our desperate need should eliminate all apathy. So this morning, we will begin our Advent season with a look at the prophecy 
of Isaiah. And we'll be in chapter 9, looking at verses, uh, looking at verses 2 through 7. So in your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 2 through 7. In Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, we'll see that we can rejoice in the anticipation of our redemption through our coming King. But it's not just a knowledge of what has come and what is to come, but we will see how this also affects our daily present lives, especially during this holiday season. But first, we'll see that as God's people, we can rejoice in anticipation. Let's start verse 2. But before we look at this passage here, we, we see here in this passage a transition from judgment to promise. Judgment in chapters 1 through 8 of Isaiah, and then now a promise. And, you know, we, we see that frequently in the prophets. But before we get to this text we got to answer the question, what is a prophet? Why did God send prophets? Well, contrary to popular belief, prophets were not really fortune tellers or even future tellers. They were God's chosen instrument to bring a message to the people. God sent them to his people to call them to repentance, to call them back to God and to his word, his law. And when God sent a prophet, their message was always summed up in one word. Repent. Turn back to God. Many of them did not have future elements in their messages. And as Pastor Brian read from Luke 1 about Zechariah prophesying about his son, John the Baptist, who would come before Christ, who was the last of the prophets before Christ, and what was John the Baptist's message, often repeated there? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And he also pointed to the one who would come after him, the Lamb of God who would take the sin from the world. And that being said, several hundred years prior to John, God sent the prophet Isaiah. The prophet who said in, in chapter 6, Here I am, Lord, send me, which is often a, a missionary text there. And the Lord responds with a statement about the reception of Isaiah's message. Hearing they will not hear, seeing they will not see. His message would not be received by the people. The people will not heed the warning. But God always has a remnant. It had been years and years of demise for the kingdom of Israel, which had then become the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. This people, the people of Israel, which God had chosen to be his people, to be a light to the nations, to show the nations what God is like, to lead others to the knowledge of the one true God. This people, this nation, became just like the rest of the nations. Instead of worshiping the one true God, they began worshiping the gods of the other nations. They traded the unseen God for gods they could hold in their hands. Because of this, all types of sin were rampant among this people God, the Lord, had chosen to be his people. 
They were unjust. They robbed others. They ripped others off in business. They were adulterers. They were fornicators. They sought fortune tellers. They robbed justice from the orphans and the widows. They trusted in their might and in their power. And when their might and power were no more, instead of repenting and coming back to the Lord, they began trusting in the might and power of other nations to save them. They were just like the other pagan nations. However, their guilt was much greater because unlike the other nations, God had revealed himself specially to them. He gave them his word, his law, so they could claim no ignorance. And if that wasn't enough, in his grace, God sent them prophets to call them back to the Lord and to his word. And what did they do? They killed God's messengers because they didn't like the message. See, the problem wasn't on the outside. The problem was with them. After years and years of God displaying abundant patience with them, he ordains, God ordains a a wicked nation to come and capture them and their land as a judgment on them. And then God, in turn, will judge that nation of whom he uses to judge the nation of Israel and Judah. So even in God's sovereignty, he is still the perfect and righteous judge. So chapters 1 through 8 of Isaiah is almost all God announcing his judgment on this people. The large nation of Assyria is coming. A nation of which Israel had trusted in instead of the Lord is now coming to destroy and take over. God's judgment through a pagan nation is coming. Their sin is going to be dealt with. But what's interesting about prophetic literature, it's like, almost like gold panning. When you're painting for gold, 99.9% of the minerals in the pan are, are not positive. It's not something you're looking for. But in the small percentage, you have gold. The majority of prophetic literature is judgment. But who quotes those verses. Who has judgment verses hanging on the walls of their kitchens and their dining rooms? No one. It's always the positive verse. It's always uh, the, the gold, the tiny percentage that we hang on to. The Jeremiah 29, 11 passage of, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for you to prosper, says the Lord, type of quotes. And then often, often completely forgetting what precedes and follows that passage. The vast majority of prophetic writing is condemnation and judgment. And that, and that is what makes these nuggets of gold so precious and sweet. For those of us who know the Lord, we know we deserve all of the judgment. And we only receive the wonderful golden promises by God's sheer grace. Now, prophetic literature has a a mixture of of narrative and poetry. And verses 2 through 7 are a beautiful poem, prophetic poem tucked in the midst of a talk of God's judgment. So we start in verse 2 because it actually in the Hebrew Bible, that's verse 1 of chapter 9. And it's the beginning of this prophetic poem. God is bringing judgment on this wicked nation. But... We have a great unconditional promise here in verses 2 through 7. So look at verses 2 through 3 first. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. Notice the repetition of the poetry here. Darkness, darkness, light, light, joy, rejoice, joy. Those who have been blinded with oppression, which they focus on, however, in reality, their oppression is because of their sin, they will see a light. They have walked in spiritual and physical darkness because of their sin, but light is about to shine on them. Not only the light is going to shine on them, but God will multiply them. He will prosper them. He will give them his joy. Wait a minute. How is this just? How is this right? Now, I understand God wiping them out because of their sin. That, That all makes sense. Why would he cause light and goodness to shine on them? If God is just and righteous, how can he give goodness to those who deserve oppression, death, and eternal judgment? Well, this God is not like the gods of other nations. The way the true God acts is not the way we can fathom or understand. Sinful men and sinful women deserve judgment. That's not debatable. That is obvious. But the true God, the creator of everything, the God of Israel, gives goodness to those who deserve judgment. Now, this makes no sense on the surface. But in a moment, we will see how God can be just. He can be righteous and yet still give goodness to those who are undeserving. But but think about this for a second. The fact of this mystery should shock us. Grace should shock us. The fact that grace does not shock us is a problem. We often expect good and are shocked with the bad. We feel entitled to good and undeserving of the bad. But brothers and sisters, it is quite the opposite. We should expect bad and be shocked with the good. We should feel entitled to the bad and undeserving of the good. And that's the reality. And you don't hear that message often in this part of the world. But until we see the just deserts for our sin, we can never taste the sweetness of God's grace. Those who know grace don't sing a song like Amazing Grace in monotone. Amazing grace, how sweet. Now you sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Or, oh come, oh come, Emmanuel. Or, come thou long expected Jesus. Because all those lyrics have a deeper meaning to you. Because you know sin. You know judgment. Yet have experienced God's grace on you. So we rejoice in the anticipation of God's grace. And we also rejoice in our redemption. Look at verses 4 through 5. It says, For the yoke of his burden 
and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And so God gives grace. And how does he give grace? Through redeeming his people. His people Israel were constantly shown grace and mercy by God. They had the constant pictures of, of the stories of the history of God's compassion on them. But what display of mercy does God announce here through the prophet Isaiah? That he will redeem them. He will take them as his own, and he will break the yoke of their oppressor. Look at verse 4 again. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He will break them of their oppressor like he did when Midian was oppressing them. Now we know this reference from Judges, chapters 6 through 8. Midian had overpowered Israel and had laid laid waste to the land and, and oppressed them. However, God called Gideon to lead a small army of 300 to defeat the large army of Midian. God's command of a small army was to show Israel and the surrounding nation that it is not by the might of man, but by the might of God that he will accomplish this. Well, Israel, with its small army, tiny army, defeats Midian, and Midian is never again heard about as a people for the rest of biblical literature. God will destroy the armies of all his people's oppressors. God will judge eternally their oppressors. Okay, now fast forward to first century A.D., the historical time of Christ's life. What was the Jewish people's context? Well, they were in the land, but they didn't own the land. Rome did. They were under Roman occupation. And what were the Jewish people wanting? What was their desire? For God to fulfill his promise here in Isaiah 9, to redeem them from their enemies. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel from the shackles of Rome. He would do it, Israel. Your Savior has come, but first he must deal with your biggest problem and your biggest enemy. Not Rome, but sin, death, and Satan. The Savior's kingdom is inaugurated through a cross. He would carry your sin on his cross. He would die your death. He would crush Satan under his nailed feet. The Lord will one day judge all your oppressors and redeem your land from foreign occupation. But first, he had to deal with your greatest problem. He had to deal with our greatest problem. As as God's people, different groups are not our enemies. Political parties are not our enemies. Nations are ultimately not our enemies. The flesh, the devil, and death are our enemies. Anybody who's experienced death in the past year know that death is our greatest enemy. When we see see our own sin as the problem, 
We look with mercy toward others who are sinners outside of Christ. We know that outside of the grace of God, we would be joining in on the party. When we know that we were formerly enslaved by Satan, we take pity on those who are still under his grasp. And when we think, when we think about our own death, we think about why we die. And the fact that the consequences of this fallen world is death. And we rejoice in the author of life who will abolish death forever. And we rejoice in the redemp- his redemption of us. God dealt with our greatest problem 2,000 years ago, and we look forward to the complete fulfillment of this prophecy. But how would God do this, and through whom? Well, he, this, this figure is another reason, and the ultimate reason why we rejoice. We rejoice in the coming king. Look at verses 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How is God going to redeem his people? How can he, going back to that question earlier, how can he be both just and merciful? By giving his people a child. And not just any child, a son. Whose son, though? And what is his name? And what is so special about this son? Well, we see that the government or or rule will be upon his shoulder. So he will be ruler over Israel. Well, that's pretty special. Wait, there's more. His name shall be called Marvelous Counselor. He's exceedingly wise. Uh, Okay, he's a, a wise king like Solomon. Okay. But he's also called Mighty God or God Almighty. So he's the king of Israel and... God? Okay. He's also called the the Father of forever, or Father of everlasting. He's eternal. And there's, so there's only one eternal one, and that is God. And he's called the Prince of Peace. His reign will bring eternal peace, the ending of all strife. Okay. A wise king over Israel, he's also God, well, that makes sense. They would understand God as, as the true king. But is he just the king of Israel? Look again in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no ends. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. His rule and his peace will have no end. It's not a kingdom of a single location, but of all locations. He is the king of Israel and all creation. So in terms of location and time, his kingdom is eternal and infinite. So this king is also God himself. Well, 
anybody would acknowledge that God is, is the king of the universe and the bestower of peace, but wait, there's, there's more to the story. There's more details here. He will establish his kingdom and will uphold it forever with justice and righteousness. Okay, we're tracking with you here. He's God and he is king. But he's not just king in a generic sense. He will sit on the throne of David. Well, this would imply that he is a son, a physical descendant of King David, the greatest and most revered of all of Israel's kings. And you may remember the Lord's covenant, his promise with David from 2 Samuel 7. The Lord promised David that David's throne over Israel would be forever. His descendants would be the only ones on the throne. So, okay, so the, the, the king of which the prophet Isaiah proclaims is a human king, a human just like every other human with, the, with flesh, soul, will. So the king to come is God? Yes. The king is man? Yes. He is both human and divine. He is the son of David and the son of God. This, this is how God is going to keep his promise to David. He, God the son, would, himself would become to be born as the son of David from David's family to fulfill the eternal throne of David. So how, how does the son of David and the son of God redeem his people? How does he rule his people? Well, he redeems his people first by living the perfectly obedient life, the law-keeping life. Every aspect of the law he kept with perfection. Something that Israel can do, the nations can do, we could not do. And then by absorbing the prophetic judgment for our sin on the cross. And he rose from the dead and has ascended into heaven and rules us now through his churches. Okay, past and present. Now we look forward to when he comes again and wipes out all wickedness, pain, and death and rules on this earth, bringing heaven and earth in perfect union and perfect peace. That's how he fulfills this prophecy. Ladies and gentlemen, this is no other than the God-man, Jesus Christ. We rejoice looking back at what God has done and bringing us a king. And we look forward to the consummation of all things, the uniting of heaven and earth forever. Isaiah reminds us that God's people can rejoice in the anticipation of the coming king who will come to redeem his people and rule them forever. So does this message bring you joy? Does it cause you to sing these songs with, we sing with greater fervor? Does it give you a better understanding of gift giving during this time of the year? God gave to judgment deserving folks like you and me. He gave us an eternal gift. He gave us eternal life through Jesus Christ, this eternal and universal King. 
Now, I know we all anticipate Christmas Day. From now until Christmas is obviously the Christmas season. We have family get-togethers, work, uh, Christmas parties, shopping outings. When people see you at these things, do they see someone who knows the joy of knowing the king of the universe has come and is coming again? Do they see someone who knows the joy of being forgiven of sin and cleared of judgment? Do the people around you at these gatherings know someone that can sympathize with the pain of living in a fallen world of sin, death, and sadness, but can tell them about the one who came to abolish all of that? Our king has come and will come again. So take, take time over the next few weeks of this season to reflect on why we rejoice. We ultimately don't rejoice over, the, over simple material provision. We, we thank God for that, but it's not the source of our rejoicing. A great Thanksgiving meal does not give us true joy. The source of our rejoicing is the fact that we know our king has come for us when we deserve judgment, and he took our judgment upon his shoulders. And you know what? He is coming again to give us the eternal reward. So whenever you hear the word joy or rejoice, or you see it on a sign, and you will throughout this season, remember Isaiah 9. Remember what our king has done and what he will do. Now, if you're here today and by invite or curiosity and you don't know this Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we invite you to come to know him today. We all deserve judgment for our sin. And he took our judgment on the cross and he died. And he rose from the dead and he rules from heaven and will come one day to physically rule all creation for the rest of eternity to receive forgiveness of sin and clearance of judgment and eternal life with him, you must admit your sin and turn to him, believing in what he did. So if that's you, call upon him today. Church, brothers and sisters, our king has come. He is with us, and he will come again. So let us praise him and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we praise you. Father, for your eternal plan to save us. Lord Jesus, for the redemption you purchased for your people. Holy Spirit, for applying this redemption to us and sanctifying us. God, help us to remember our sin and judgment and then help us to remember your grace and this King. Lead us to rejoice in you and use us to draw others into your joy. In Christ's name, amen.